We gather in a home as a Christian fellowship of believers who come to participate with one another, to encourage each other, to exhort each other, to uh, find a time of mutual caring and edification, prayer, and also a lesson, a time in study in Scripture where we listen to the voice of the Spirit through the text and come away with a time from that time rejoicing, having heard from God in the text and shared that experience with each other. Now, we do this in contrast to the more traditional model that many of us have found very um, less than satisfying and even lifeless at times, And um, but what we all lived with for, for decades, perhaps, and uh, and the mo- that model being a clergy-centered model, a, a performance-centered model, in which uh, the people are kind of ushered into a, um, kind of, for lack of a better phrase, kind of a holding pen area, and then they watch the performance up front by the professionals, uh, and then ushered out that side door back into the parking lot and believe that they've attended church. And after decades of that, many of us have decided that that is just not meaningful for us and and even lifeless. And so we what we do in our home-based fellowship is a pursuit of the model of fellowship and worship that is set forth in the New Testament, particularly in 1 Corinthians 12 through 14, and in keeping with our Lord's prescription to worship in spirit and in truth, and not based upon the old traditional model that came from the uh, Judaism, from the temple or synagogue-based model, uh, where there's uh, people up front and there's people in the pews, and uh, and then was recaptured, even though the temple was destroyed in 70 A.D., by the second century, the early church fathers, as they were called, um, began to reinstitute much of that. And sacred buildings and uh, cathedrals and basilicas came into play. And, and an elevated clergy with their investments and robes and special powers over the Lord's Supper and special powers to provide over baptism and the homily and uh, everything was focused to the front of the church where there was an altar and uh, again and 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 the Levitical priesthood was really being reinstated in defiance of the exclusive and unique and final high priesthood of Jesus Christ. And of course, that led to the Dark Ages, that led to the medieval theology of the clergy, laity, distinction. Uh, and sadly, the Reformation, as much as many good things came out of the Reformation, that failed to be reformed. Uh, Luther and Calvin and Zwingli and others, John Knox, failed to reform that part of the church. And so it carried over and it's existing even to this day. You can go to the most independent evangelical church and you're going to find a very similar church order and church structure that remains pastor-centered, that remains with all the focus and the attention facing forward, and all the professionalism in the worship oftentimes. Um, and so it's not a, that clergy-centered, church-building-centered model is not something we accept any longer. 
And so we rather we gather. We gather in a more egalitarian manner. There's no hierarchy. Everyone's encouraged to exercise their spiritual gifts. Uh, of, of each, Everyone has at least one, and some many. And then we come away with a much greater sense of fulfillment. It's much more transformative and life-giving. And as I say, one of the things we do in that fellowship is we have a lesson. And this week it was Hebrews chapter 10, verses 1 through 25. And so let me begin by reading that text, Hebrews chapter 10, verses 1 through 25. He says, verse 1, For the law, since it has only a shadow of the good things to come, and not the very form of the things, can never, by the same sacrifices which they offer continually, year by year, make perfect those who draw near. Otherwise, they would have not, would they not have ceased to be offered? Because the worshippers, having once been cleansed, would no longer have consciousness of sins. But in those sacrifices, there is a reminder of sins, year by year. For it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. Therefore, when he comes into the world, he says, Sacrifice and offering you have not desired, but a body you have prepared for me. In burnt offerings and sacrifices for sins you have taken no pleasure, then I said, Behold, I have come. In the scroll of the book it is written of me, To do your will, O God. End quote. And then verse 8, After saying above sacrifices and offerings, and burnt offerings and sacrifices, for sin you have not desired, nor have you taken pleasure in them, which are offered according to the law, then he said, Behold, I have come, to do your will. He takes away the first in order to establish the second. Uh, by this will we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. And every priest stands daily ministering and offering time after time the same sacrifices which can never take away sins. But he, having offered one sacrifice for sins for all time, sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from time from that time until his enemies are put as a footstool for his feet. For by one offering he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. And the Holy Spirit also testifies to us, for after saying, this is the covenant that I will make with them. After those days, says the Lord, I will put my laws upon their heart, and on their mind I will write them. He then says, And their sins and their lawless deeds I will remember no more. Now where there is forgiveness of these things, there is no longer any offering for sin. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy place by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way, which he inaugurated for us through the veil, that is, his flesh, and since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a sincere heart in full assurance of faith, 
having our hearts sprinkled from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how to stimulate one another to love and good deeds, forsaking our own, not forsaking our own assembly together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another. And all the more as you see the day drawing near. End quote. Well, may the Lord add his blessing to this reading of his holy and fully inspired and inerrant word. Amen. Well, the best way to take a look at this text is to begin with the imperatives. Last time we were together, we talked about the difference and how important it is it to understand that the indicatives of Scripture always precede the imperatives. In other words, what God has done on our behalf and accomplished in his Son always precedes what we are to do about it. We don't follow the imperatives of Scripture in order the commands of Scripture in order to become something that we presently are not. Rather, we follow the commands or the imperatives of Scripture because it is indicative of us who have been given a new heart with the law written on our minds and hearts and the Spirit indwelling us to do those things. In other words, we follow the imperatives, the commands of Scripture, in order to better work out who we truly are now in Christ. So it's not a religious prescription in which we do things in order to become something we presently are not. Instead, the New Testament principle is that we follow the commands of Scripture because they are indicative of our new nature to do so. It's just something we do. We may not be familiar with it. We have to rehabituate ourselves from having walked in the ways of the world in our old Adamic nature. But now that we are in Christ, we are a new creation in Christ, it is also, therefore, indicative that we act out in that new nature in certain ways. And that's what the imperatives in Scripture are for. So he tells us, he gives us first in verse 19 a summary. He says, Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way, which he inaugurated for us through the veil that is his flesh, and since we have a great priest over the house of God, and then he gives us those three imperatives. One, let us draw near with a sincere heart and full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. And then the second imperative, let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he, pro he who promised is faithful. And then the third imperative, and let us consider how to stimulate one another to love and good deeds, not forsaking our own assembling together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. So this is a wonderful example of how the New Testament instructs us and how the Holy Spirit guides us through the text of, this, of Scripture. So what we have here then is these 
three imperatives, but let's look now, before we dig into those a little bit more, at the indicatives, meaning what God has accomplished so that we are able to keep and walk in those imperatives. And that is verses 1 through 18, where he is contrasting the sacrificial system of the law versus the sacrifice of Christ. And there's some very important contrasts here. For instance, he says right out of the gate for the law, since it has only a shadow of the good things to come and not the very form or image of the things, can never, and that's a big word here, never, by the same sacrifices which they continually offer year by year, make perfect those who draw near. So there was a sacrificial system that was centered at the temple with a Levitical priesthood that offered those sacrifices and offerings on behalf of the people as a temporal way of addressing sin and its need for forgiveness as we awaited the coming of the Messiah and the perfect sacrifice, the once-for-all sacrifice. And then he says in verse 2 that, uh, actually, verse 1, he makes the point, those, that system, that Levitical system, could not make perfect those who draw near. Now, that's an important point. There is a need to be made perfect. In other words, there is a need to draw near to God and to do so within perfection. This is the profound thing he's saying here. And that the temple system, the Levitical sacrificial system, and those priests, that priestly ministry could never accomplish that. And then he asked the question, otherwise, would they not have ceased to be offered? Because the worshipers, having once been cleansed or purged, would no longer have consciousness of sins. So what we're reading here in these verses is two immediate indicators of what the sacrificial um, offering of Jesus did for us. One, it made us perfect. And two, it cleansed us in such a manner that we are no longer have consciousness of sin. Now hold that thought, because that's a powerful thing. That's a mind-boggling, breathtaking reality and benefit to the sacrifice of Christ. Let's go on now. But in those sacrifices, there's a reminder of sins year by year. Many of you, some of you, are familiar with uh, church services in which perhaps in liturgical form, you are actually reminded to now it's time to stand up and let's confess our sins to Almighty God. And then you do so in a liturgical way, and then this, the priest will stand up, or the clergyman will stand up in the Presbyterian Church, for example, and declare or give you absolution. So there's a continual, ongoing reminder of sins, a continual, ongoing need for absolution as dispensed by the clergy. 
And what is that if it's not just a, a throwback, however unintentional, to the Levitical priesthood, which could never take away sins? Okay, more on that soon. But in those sacrifices, there's a reminder of sins year by year. For it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. And I would suggest now at this point that it is impossible for any form of mediation. Let me back up. It is impossible for any form of confession, mediation, and absolution to take away sins. I don't care how often you go to church how often you confess your sins publicly within the liturgy, or if you're in a Baptist environment, perhaps you go down to the altar. You have They have an altar call every Sunday. I had an occasion once to preach in a Baptist church many years ago, and uh, not being from that um, uh, form of worship, I, I was just an expositor. I got up and I preached, and when I was done, I said the amen, closed my Bible, and went and sat down. And the deacon came up to me and looked at me like, what? What are you doing? And he looked over the congregation and kind of shrugged his shoulders and said, well, I, I guess that's it, and uh, let's have our final song and be dismissed. It turns out I found out later that they were had every expectation that I was going to give some kind of an invitation, some kind of a altar call. And have people come down to the front to the quote-unquote altar and get saved and confess their sins and be prayed for. I didn't do that, and it was really disruptive to their style of worship. But what they didn't realize is that this continual need to be reminded of their sins through some kind of um, uh, uh, fire and brimstone preaching and then bring them down to the front where people quote-unquote, get saved every Sunday <laughs> it was nothing different than the liturgical uh, environment where people will actually stand, confess their sins, and then get absolution from the priest. It's the same concept, and that concept, whether it's Baptist or liturgi liturgical, has far more in common with a Levitical system than it does the New Covenant form of worship, the New Testament form of worship. So you see what's happening here immediately. What we're discovering is the impotence and the uselessness of the old sacrificial system to truly change hearts and minds, to truly transform sinners, to truly deal with the problem of sin. And yet, since the second century, that system, that old system that God judged in Jerusalem in 70 AD, has nonetheless come back into vogue time and again, beginning with the early church fathers in the second and third century, where the ministers of the church began to be given the attributes, ascribed the attributes of the old Levitical priesthood, the ordained priesthood. And so that has carried forward throughout the centuries and it's present with us even to this day. So this text in 
Hebrews chapter 10, 1 through 18, is very contemporary in its application. And it's full of wonder and glory, beloved, because what we're going to discover is that in the high priesthood of Christ, both in his once and for all sacrifice and his continual intercession for us as our high priest, we have been freed from that sin-haunting consciousness. Freed from the law of sin and death by the spirit of life in Christ Jesus due to his permanent, final, exclusive, and unique offering and priesthood. And that we dare not, we dare not begin to convolute that with some kind of a return to any kind of alternative mediation ministry where we are dependent upon some other mediator other than Jesus Christ or some kind of form of worship other than worship in spirit and in truth. So these are very sobering things. They're also very glorious. We have the wonder of Christ's finished work and we have the warning not to step away from it, not to return to the old, useless form of mediation. Okay. So, having established the fact that the Levitical priesthood of sacrificing bulls and goats is not going to take away sins. It is not designed to do that. It was never intended to do that. And that all it does is remind you of sins year by year so that so that most Christians today who have come under the influence of that type of system, although we're not sacrificing the blood of bulls and goats, we are sacrificing our own peace of mind by coming as if we are this. And this is where we get the language of, oh, I'm just a sinner saved by grace. And while that's technically true, it isn't practically true. It isn't your identity today. You aren't, just as Luther said, a pile of dung with a fresh blanket of white snow over the top of it, meaning the righteousness of Christ. I tell you, any gospel that doesn't change you from the inside out is not the gospel. And any form of worship that keeps reminding you of what you were in Adam and not who you are in Christ is a false form of worship. And that's his point here in Hebrews chapter 10. Okay. And so, and then it speaks of the Son coming into the world and acknowledging that the Father does not want sacrifices of offerings and uh, burnt offerings and sacrifices for sin. He takes no pleasure in them. What he takes pleasure in is his son who has come to do his will. This this harkens back to 1 Samuel 15, where you might remember King Saul was given an order by Samuel to go into battle and destroy God's enemies the enemies of God's redemptive purposes. And instead of doing so, he compromised that. He modified that. He decided that he would change the command of God to fit his own agenda. 
And so God told him, it's obedience that I want, not sacrifice. And so we have a very similar reference here to when the Son comes into the world, the Messiah comes into the world and fulfills that call of God. In the scroll of the book it is written of me to do your will, O God. It is obedience, not sacrifices and offerings that God calls us to in his Son because that's how Jesus functioned. That's how Jesus fulfilled the Father's will. And that will was fulfilled in the cross. In Philippians chapter 2, it says that he became obedient to death, even death on the cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and given him a name above every other name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee shall bow and every tongue shall confess that he is Lord to the glory of the Father. So it's a whole different emphasis now. We are not to be sin-haunted people, relying on different, differing forms of mediating ministries to try to ease our conscience all the time, to try to feel better about ourselves. I don't care if it's an ordained priest who's offering you absolution or some hip, slick, and cool preacher who's telling you how you should feel good about yourself and how God's on your side and, and trying to appeal to your flesh for your health, wealth, and prosperity. That is just no different than a Catholic priest pronouncing absolution or doing the sacrifice of the Mass. Both the hip, slick, and cool evangelical guy who's preaching to you about your uh, having your best life now and getting you feeling good about yourself, or the Catholic or Anglican priest or the whoever, whatever, the uh, Presbyterian priest, um, pastor, who's mediating to you forgiveness, is both of those are an alternative mediation to the one mediator, Jesus Christ. And you will never ever reach any sense you'll never be free from that hauntedness of sin in your conscience while you're seeking alternative forms of mediation you may feel better for the moment you may leave a um, wild-eyed evangelical uh, self-help and self-improvement type of preaching and feel good about yourself for a couple hours but you're going to drift back into that sense that something's not right. It's not fulfilling. It's not life-giving. And so he goes on to say, verse 10, By this will we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. Now please pick up on that language because it's very important language. Once for all. He says in verse 11, he reminds us again, And every priest stands daily ministering and offering time after time the same sacrifices which cannot take away sins. So you see the contrast there. Daily offering sacrifices time and time again which can never take away sins as opposed to the one offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. But when Jesus comes into the world, when the Son comes into the world, 
But he, having offered one sacrifice for sins for all time, sat down at the right hand of God. This speaks of finality, permanence, and as importantly, all-sufficient. For by one offering he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. So he sat down at the right hand of God. That's a very important phrase because the high priest under the Levitical system could not sit down because his work was never finished. So when Jesus did his work, he offered his sacrifice of his own body at the cross, which was then evidently acceptable to the Father by raising him from the dead. And by his ascension to the right hand of the Father, he sits at the right hand of the Father, his atoning work having been completed. Something the old covenant high priest could never have done. And he's waiting from that time until his enemies are put as a footstool for his feet. Now, put on your seatbelt because this is very important. <laughs> and this is very contrary to the old, I'm a sinner saved by grace and I still just struggle with sin and I'm burdened by the flesh and I can't, I can't just get free from these things. I'm, oh, I'm so glad for grace because without grace I'd just be condemned forever. And, and see, and that's, those are half-truths. They're half-truths, but they're not the whole counsel of God. So let's look at the whole counsel of God now, beginning with verse 14. For by one offering he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. You are utterly perfect before God as a consequence of the offering of Christ. You have been perfected for all time. You're never going to be more perfect than you before God than you are at this moment because it's not about anything you did but it's about the perfection of the sacrifice of Christ once for all time for all sins past present future the blood of Jesus has effectively dealt with effectually dealt with sin in your life there's no virtue there's nothing pious about walking around with rounded soldiers, shoulders and being Christ, excuse me, a sin-haunted person. It doesn't serve the glory of God and it doesn't manifest the gospel at all. The gospel is, is Christ has taken care of it. He has offered a perfect sacrifice. But he says there, who are being sanctified. So we have three things here. We have the accomplishment of Christ. He has accomplished that. And it is finished. You can't take anything legitimately away from it, and you can't legitimately take add anything to it. That's what's happened in the past. It's done. And in the present, God wants you to enjoy that. He wants you to experience that. He wants you to know his love, his acceptance, his forgiveness. He wants you to come to him not in fear, but in crying, Abba, Father, as the spirit of his Son works in you, and as the spirit is in you, conforming you into the image of his Son. 
So he wants you to experience that in the presence. He, want you, he wants you to understand and experience that you are no longer being related to by God on the basis of sin and death, and that you are not to relate to him either on the basis of sin. This is so important. So listen to the rest of this. Verse 15, And the Holy Spirit also testifies to us. And remember, this is the author saying, there's a higher authority than even myself. You need to listen to the Holy Spirit. It's the Holy Spirit who's saying, this is the covenant, and he's quoting from Jeremiah 31, 34, the old covenant promise in Jeremiah. This is the covenant that I will make with them after those days, says the Lord. I will put my laws upon their heart, and on their mind I will write them. He then says, and their sins and their lawless deeds I will remember no more. And then listen to this breathtaking statement in verse 18. Now where there is forgiveness of these things, there is no longer any offering for sin. <laughs> the sacrifice of Christ is so comprehensive it's so complete. It so perfects you before God that there is no longer any offering for sin. It has been completed. God has effectually dealt with the sin problem in your life in the sacrifice, the perfect sacrifice of his son so that we no longer come to God on the basis of the need for confession and sin absolution. We, have, we no longer have to come to God and first begin by recounting all of our sins. Let me just ask you a question. Have you ever been able to truly confess your sins? The fact is you can't. The fact is you never will be, and you never have. People say, well, I've confessed my sins. Well, you confess the sins that you are most conscious of, but you, you can never fully confess your sins. So if your forgiveness or your absolution is directly tied to your ability to confess all your sins, you'll never get your sins forgiven. We aren't forgiven because we confess. We confess because we're forgiven. It's acceptance before God that precedes repentance. But we aren't even to walk around scraping our psyche looking for sins anymore. We don't come to God on that basis anymore. So how do we come to God? Well, again, the summary of everything he said in those first 18 verses is that this breathtaking reality that we are no longer relating to our Heavenly Father on the basis of sin, but on the basis of His acceptance in Christ. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, there you go. There's the basis. Never was, listen carefully, it never was your ability to fully confess your sins, nor was it ever your ability to avoid sinning, nor was it ever your ability to do enough religious duties and rites and rituals 
that ever afforded you the ability to enter into the presence of God. No, you enter into the presence of God by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way, not the old way of the letter, which leads to death, but by a new and living way, which he inaugurated for us through the veil, that is, his own flesh. And since we have a great priest over the house of God, and then he gives us those three imperatives that I mentioned earlier. And let me close with just a quick review of those one more time. He tells us, Let us draw near with a sincere heart in full assurance of faith, not ritualistic works and confessions, but of faith, having our hearts sprinkled from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. You know, religious guilt is very real. Religious trauma and religious neurosis even is very real for many people. They have a hard time getting loose of something that they have done or perhaps some ways that they have lived in the past and they can't let go of the guilt. But when he talks about our hearts being sprinkled from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water, that is a direct quote from the promise of the new covenant in Ezekiel 36, where he says, Then I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you will be clean. I will cleanse you from all your uncleanness and from all your idols. The question before us this morning, beloved, is this. Do you accept that you have been cleansed? Will you believe that you have been um, purged from all your idols and that you stand before God on that basis? Not because of anything you've done, not because of anything you've accomplished, but because what God has accomplished in his Son and in the continual high priesthood of Christ. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. See, it's based upon his promise, not your performance. You can write that one down. Not, excuse me, based upon his promise, not your performance. And let us consider how to stimulate one another to love and good deeds. People who know they're forgiven, people who know on what basis they reproach God, that is, as a beloved child crying, Abba, Father, and not as a sin-plagued sinner hoping for absolution. Those who come as a beloved child crying, Abba, Father, are people who are going to be able to stimulate others to love and good deeds. They're going to be people who can't wait to get together with other believers of the same spirit, those of kindred spirit, and assemble together and encourage one another, and all the more as we see the day drawing near. What day is that? The day of Christ. The day in which that which was accomplished and that which is experienced now, but is yet to be fully realized, will indeed be fully realized. So there is a lesson for today. We must be careful, however, because in, there's a wonder of what Christ has accomplished, 
And then there's a warning, too. In the context of our study today is verse 26, where it says, For if we go on sinning willfully after we've received the knowledge of the truth, there is no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but a terrifying expectation of judgment and the fury of a fire which will consume the adversaries. Now the moralists will tell you in the church that that has to do with backsliding. That has to do with uh, going back to smoking and chewing and going with people who do, <laughs> and so on. And it is, that's not his point, not in the context. What he's saying here, if we go back to some other alternative mediating ministry, other than that which is found exclusively, uniquely, finally, in the person and work of Jesus Christ, then we are sinning willfully. If we're going to go back to relate to God on the basis of sin, and even if it's sin that we seek resolution through another alternative mediating ministry, then we're, in, in essence, rejecting the sacrifice of Christ. And there's nothing left for us to expect except judgment. So there you have it. Hebrews is a book of wonder. The wonder of Christ's all-sufficient high priesthood in our life. Where the sin issue is dealt with, and through his continual intercession, we have life. So there's the wonder and the warning. It's a real problem. It's a real problem because throughout church history, the, the simple, exclusive, unique, and final priesthood of Christ has always sought to be diminished, distorted, minimized in favor of some other form of religious practice where we are still stuck in the sin question. And while we may, it may come in context of Christianity, it may look like Christianity, it may sound like Christianity, it hasn't presented us with a solution that is permanent, that is final, and that is freeing, that brings life where there was only death, that brings joy where there was once only fear. Why would we go back to that? Well, may the Lord strengthen you as you listen to this. May you consider it. May you listen to it more than once. Read the text several times prayerfully, carefully, thoroughly, and pray for the illumination of the Holy Spirit to give you the, a, a great awareness of the wonder, of the perfection that you are before God because of the blood of Jesus. Amen.